What's up, everyone? You're listening to Hey Man, the advice podcast for men. I'm Avi Klein. I'm Sam Graham-Felson. I'm a therapist. Sam's a novelist. Each week, we answer one of your questions and hopefully get a few of our own questions answered as well. Our guest this week is Zach Iskell. Zach is a decorated combat veteran, a grand marshal of New York City's 2019 Veterans Day Parade, and the founder of several companies, including Higher Purpose and Task and Purpose. He also founded Headstrong, an organization dedicated to helping veterans heal from PTSD. Zach helps us with a question this week from a man who's struggling to take responsibility after messing up at work. Thanks for coming on again. Yeah, uh, thank uh, you guys for having me. Yeah, um, and we're going to try something a little bit different. Uh, Uh Uh-oh. Okay. You're our guinea pig. <laughs> um, uh, so we'll get to the question later, yep. but um, the theme of the question, or like the guy who's writing, is someone. My impression after reading it, and and later, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. But it was just someone who's struggling with responsibility and like being a responsible person. Okay. And you know, reading your bio, like you strike me as like a very responsible on top Man. of it guy. Mom, are you listening? <laughs> is my wife listening? Um, and you I guess that, I Mom? was, I was curious. I mean, like you're, you've like founded like a bunch of companies and I mean, clear. and I'm, I guess I also was thinking about your experience as a Marine where like, yeah. um, there's such a, uh, I imagine a sense of discipline instilled, but I was wondering if you have experiences with irresponsibility. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. If you should be talking to my parents, what would I mean, they say? <laughs> my my dad, growing up, I think like probably more often than not, I'd hear you'd lose your freaking head if it wasn't attached to your shoulders. Uh-huh. You know, what I mean, it was like. Um, By the way, you're allowed to swear on this. Yeah, podcast. oh, you are yeah, allowed yeah, to swear. Yeah. Great, good. <laughs> um, yeah, certainly. I I I think I grew up in. Um, I, I was very fortunate. I have two really, really incredible parents. Um, who uh, my my dad is just turned eighty. Uh, he's from Jamaica, Queens. Mm-hmm. His dad died when he was 13. He went to work the very next day. He was a what they call like a pin monkey at a bowling alley. So his job uh, was to like set up the pins, you know, for bowlers before yeah. they had the machines. And he then used his father's GI Bill to go to go to college, um, became a very successful entrepreneur. My mom was a public school teacher um, uh, here in the city at PS45, and then they moved out of the city. Um, she worked in education her entire life. But I definitely kept them busy with with irresponsibility. But I think one of the things that they did really well, especially my my dad, is he was very very big on lessons. Mm-hmm. So when I would fuck up, it was an opportunity to teach me a lesson. So there there was you know one Halloween, me and this kid Will Clarkson. Will Clarkson was uh, a troublemaker, <laughs> um, and uh, he was one of my close friends. And we got in some trouble on Halloween, you know, with shaving cream and cherry bombs and. You know, when my dad found out about it, you know, it was it it he had me out there the next morning on that street at six AM cleaning up the street and then once it was an appropriate time, knocking on everybody's doors, apologizing, asked telling them that I, you know, sorry for what I did. I cleaned up your mailbox, cleaned up your trees. Uh and then the next point was uh what can I do to make it better? Like that was that wasn't enough. And so time and again when I would fuck up, he would find a way of of embodying some some lesson into it what was that like for you um i also was like kind of a troublemaker (laughs) (laughs) and i remember when my parents uh it was my mom i think who was more on top of like figuring out how to make it right it always felt really good to me like to be held accountable in some way like i kind of it's funny like even though i got into trouble like i liked being held accountable for sure and and i think with my parents the big thing was um honesty was always critical uh-huh. you know it's like as the, the one thing they didn't want was i couldn't smoke cigarettes if i smoked cigarettes i was out of the house marijuana they're like if if you want to try marijuana like talk to us first if you want to drink don't drive that was a big thing um but cigarettes were like a huge no-no you know my dad would have would have crushed me if i ever smoked a cigarette but other than that it was really about honesty and taking responsibility for your actions and you know you're gonna fuck up in life so had you kind of like uh, got your head on straight by the time you made it to the Marines or um, um, were there still I, lessons to be learned? <laughs> there was still definitely a lot of lessons to be learned. And I was, was fortunate in college. I, I played lightweight football at Cornell and I had a phenomenal football coach uh, named Terry Cullen who was a Marine officer in Vietnam, Silver Star recipient, badly wounded. And I definitely kept him busy. Um, you know, he, uh, 
he was a mentor. He sort of kept me on track and um, was sort of one of the forces that that drove me towards joining the Marine Corps as opposed to the other services. But I think just at, at different stages, I was fortunate enough to have a mentor to learn from. When did you have the inkling that you wanted to um, serve in the military? Do you remember like what age you started? Always been there. You know, I think I I grew up um, in a family where almost all the men had served. My dad came from a Gold Star family, so his uncle was killed in World War II. Uh, he was a, a radio operator, navigator on a on a bomber, and uh, the bomber was shot down over Europe. And uh, you know, growing up, um, you know, when he was growing up, you know, every Sunday they'd go over to his parents' house and then they'd go to the cemetery to visit, you know, his uncle's grave. And so I grew up with stories about, uh, about Uncle Chet, you know, from my grandma and her experiences with the war. My grandma's second husband, because my dad's dad died when he was little, was uh, Papa Lou, who was like a grandfather to me. He was a tank driver in Europe. Uh, my dad's dad had served in, Euro- in World War II. My dad was in the Air Force. We grew up with a lot of Holocaust survivors being Jewish. And so there was, there was that connection. And so I think it was, for me, I was always drawn to the military. There was never a question that I was going to do anything else in my 20s. Hmm. And to be honest, I also, I couldn't imagine doing anything else in my 20s. You know, there was, there was an, a sense of adventure and purpose in, uh, in joining the service. So playing, obviously playing football for a Division One school gives you some... Uh, lightweight football. Lightweight football. Okay, okay. <laughs> but you had some idea. It's a varsity sport, but it is for smaller guys like myself. Okay, okay. Um, but you had some idea of uh, what sort of a regimented, disciplined life uh felt and looked like but i'm always curious like when i meet um people who served like what the transition is like going from just being someone with total freedom to wake up at like noon if you feel like it drink as much as you want the night before (laughs) do anything and then all of a sudden you're 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 in training and um there are all of these rules all of a sudden and like is it overwhelming do you get used to it quickly what what was that like i don't do well without structure so my, my freshman year of college was a disaster. You know, I, I, I went to boarding school. I came to college. I was sort of cocky and thought I knew everything. Didn't really have any imposed structure. And this was sort of one of the things that Terry Cullen sort of helped, my, my, my coach sort of helped impose was, was that structure. But it, it, if, if I don't have that structure, I, I, don't, I don't thrive. So I sort of, in college, sort of created it through football. Um, you know, had somebody like Terry Cullen who was sort of, helping me create that structure. And then the military certainly helps provide it as well. Um, but, and now in my life, I just sort of need to figure out ways to create it myself. How did your coach help you with that? Like it sounds I think like- it was basically an ultimatum. You oh. know, like if, if you don't get your grades up and this is how you get your grades up, you go to class and you study. <laughs> and if you don't do these things, then you're not going to be playing football. Like it was pretty, it was pretty much that simple. And so it's like, you know, Friday night, like after a game, like, no, you shouldn't be going out with the team because your grades aren't good enough, mm. you know, and like you should be going to the library or you should be going and studying. And so I think that ultimatum just sort of was, was it. Um, so I guess a month after you enlisted, um, 9-11 happened? Yeah, so I was commissioned August 11th, 2001, and uh, a month later, 9-11 happened. I was actually hunting in Canada excuse me um i was hunting in canada and uh i was we were elk hunting so when you're elk hunting you sort of go out in the woods for for days at a time and we'd been out in the woods for i think like five days maybe and then we came back to this little hunting cabin for a night and then we were going back out for like another four or five days and i i just remember i left the cabin and uh get in the truck to go out in the field came back in just to get another piece of french toast and we heard it on the radio that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. What uh, what was your reaction? Do you remember? Well, I remember at that time I thought maybe it was just an accident. You know, it was just over the radio. Right. But my college girlfriend, who remains to this day one of my best friends, she worked down there. Oh wow! And so I immediately was very concerned for her and her safety. So I we drove to town. Uh, we were, there's a hunting guide that we we're with, and so I went over to his house really nice Canadian guy. And uh, we just turned on the news. And then I started frantically trying to call her, trying to call my family. Uh, it turns out she was, she worked at Deutsche Bank at the time. Uh, and she uh, has, 
was actually on a recruiting trip up at Cornell for for the banks. So she wasn't even in town. We have a weird thing in common. We we were both in Canada on nine eleven. Really? <laughs> I was I was in Canada on nine eleven because I was actually in an airplane really? that was grounded, and uh, I I'll never forget this. The pilot, because usually when something's going wrong, you know they don't actually tell you. They're just like, uh, yeah, you know, there's some issue. We're gonna resolve it, <laughs> but we have to land. You know, but the pilot literally was like, we just got some call in about some potential terrorism so we're gonna have to land and um wow. so i was i was on the ground where'd you land in toronto in uh, newfoundland um, there's like a play about there's a broadway yeah. is there smash really smash broadway hit yeah. about this that i still haven't seen but yeah. anyway um so like like 300 planes or something like yeah, that we're all grounded i mean in the thing i'll never forget was that as the plane was land pulling into this sort of like rural airport that looked kind of like a, a farm there was like old um uh, wood fencing, like there were just hundreds of Canadians like taking pictures of all these planes, just like nose to tail on the runway. I was like, something really weird is going wow. on here. So, anyway, um, that's that's a story for another day. But uh, <laughs> but, but I'm just I'm thinking about being enlisted um, and 9/11 happening, and like that surge of patriotism that happened after that, and that must have been a really powerful feeling to be. I mean, were you either one of you in New York City? After nine eleven, I I had just left it. That was my first like week in college or second. Okay, week in but your college. family, lives yeah, my downtown. family lives downtown. Yeah. The city was, I mean, it was devastating. Yeah, right. And and and, you know, there are these moments where you see groups of firefighters or groups of police officers walking together. They were coming from funerals because there was just funeral yeah. after funeral yeah. after funeral in the city. But there was also like this remarkable sense of unity and coming together. Mm-hmm. I remember the, the Yankees World Series, you know, taking the train up to see the games yeah. with my dad. And, you know, you're sort of on this train. You also have the anthrax stuff that's going on at right. the same time in the city. And everybody's kind of a little skittish and worried. But, like, you're like, fuck it. We're going to we're gonna show up together. We're yeah. going to be together. And we're going to go to the Yankees game. And the Yankees are in the World Series. And Yeah, there's, like, a real, like, tenderness to the city. I remember coming home and, like, and all of those... Uh, like by St. Vincent's Hospital and stuff, yeah. like all the notes and like the tiles and stuff and all, yeah, yeah. Um, and and but but obviously, like you had you had just been commissioned, so you still had to be trained. So I still had to be trained. So yeah. I ended up going to uh, my next the next school you go to. So you go to the, the way the Marine Corps works is you go to officer candidate school, which is more of sort of like a selection process. You don't really get you get trained enough just so that they know that you're you're going to be a good officer. And then between that and a college degree, you get your commission. So you're commissioned as a second lieutenant, but you don't know jack shit. The next school you go to is called the basic school. So every Marine officer, regardless of what their specialty is, they go to the basic school and you learn the basics of being a Marine officer, the basics of leading a platoon, admin, land navigation, how to use a radio. Um, and that's a six-month course. And then from there, everybody goes on to their specialty to be a supply officer, logistics, infantry, tanks, aviation. I went in. I was a had a guaranteed flight contract. I was supposed to go to flight school. And uh, it, flight school is about a two to three year program. And I was worried if I went to flight school, I'd miss the war. Mm. So I dropped my flight contract, went infantry. You were wrong about I, that. I was wrong. I <laughs> <Yeah>. think <laughs> last I looked at my watch, the war is still yeah. still going on. It might even be expanding. Yeah. yeah. So you, you went to Iraq. What year was that? So I did, uh, so after the basic school, I went to the infantry officer course. And then... Um, I deployed on a Marine Expeditionary Unit, which is like a bunch of Marines on Navy ships um, to the Middle East, and we went ashore in Iraq for a short period of time. So it was my first time in Iraq. That was after the initial invasion. It was pretty quiet, pretty uneventful. Coming back from that deployment um, was when four Blackwater contractors were killed in the city of Fallujah, and things were starting to heat up out in the western parts of Iraq in, Al- in a place called the Al-Anbar province. And... Um, my platoon sergeant and I, uh, who is one of my closest friends to this day, we sort of basically volunteered to go out with the next deploying unit, which was 3rd Battalion, 1st Marine. So we, as soon as we got home, crossed over to the other battalion, then a couple months later, we were back out the door with 3-1, uh, and so landed in, I think, June of 2004. Um, I... I, I... One of my um, hobbies is I like to actually listen to military podcasts. And one, one of the things that um, uh, comes up is um, just like listening to different veterans. Like some veterans um, 
are very aware that like there's a real risk that they could die. And other veterans are just like, oh, no, 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 that'll never happen to me. <laughs> you know, like it'll be fine. Like there's this one guy who talks about like even if like a plane was crashing, he'd still have right. the attitude. Like I'm still going to survive. Like whatever. <laughs> I'm curious, like did you what what were you doing to mentally prepare? Were you were you in the camp of like, ah, I'm not going to think about it. It's like it's not going to happen to me. Or were you like consciously, you know, considering yeah, your mortality? I, am, I was not consciously considering my mortality. I was. And it's not because I'm not trying to sound brave or anything. I think you are just, you are so, you're so busy in that when, when you're there. And especially as, as, a, as I, I was dual hatted on the deployment. I was a platoon commander and a company XO. So I had two different jobs. And you're just so, you're just, you have so much to do constantly that you don't have time to think about that. Um, I mean, there's one moment actually in Fallujah where uh, we, we had called in a danger close artillery strike. So we were, that that means that so you're within the max effective range of a, an artillery round when you call it in that close to your position. So we called it a danger close artillery strike, which means you're hunkered down preparing for this, this these are these rounds of artillery to come in. And uh, so we're hunkered down and we hear this screaming noise, and I think it's the artillery, and huge explosion, and it's like not just danger close, like it's on top of us. And so I'm yelling in the rain, you know, in the radio, you know check fire, check fire, check fire. And um, turns out an F-16 had accidentally dropped a 500-pound bomb Jeez, about 40 meters from our position. And it's just because of the mitigating effects of urban terrain that, that we were okay. But afterwards, my a guy named Corporal Martinez, who's now a sergeant major in the Marine Corps, and he was my acting platoon sergeant at that time because of um, uh, some folks that got wounded. He was, uh, he and I just looked at each other. We, we had to evacuate a couple guys after that. And we put our backs up against this wall uh, you know, after we sort of dealt with the whole situation and after sort of the dust had cleared and we evacuated our wounded and uh, he handed me a cigarette, you know, even though I said to my parents that I would never smoke. And uh, Well, now your dad knows. Now that. my dad knows. He handed me a cigarette we're, we're smoking a cigarette and he just looked at me and he's like, do you think we're dead? Like, you know, like, do you think like we're just like, wow. are we just are we like ghosts right now? Like just stuck in the city of Fallujah? And um, what a mind fuck! It was it was quite yeah. a mind fuck. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of those in that in that city. <laughs> um, I wonder. Uh, I want to ask you about the organizations you started, yeah. particularly Headstrong. But I wonder, like, um, you know, when we think about, but before getting into PTSD and stuff, mm -hmm. um, like it, it seems to me, just from you know listening to veterans talking, reading books by veterans, mm -hmm. et cetera, that like one of the most difficult transitions back into civilian life is like going from literally life or death situations of maximal importance and meaning where your decisions could mean somebody that you care about living or dying right. to like having to go grocery shopping because you ran out of diapers, right? Um, uh, can you just, what was that transition like for you and like, you know, um, can you talk slow. a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. It was slow. I mean, I think it's it's different for everybody. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that's a good question. I think it just it's it's really different for for everybody. Um, for me, and this probably has a lot to do with sort of my my parents and how for them it was always important that you find meaning and a lesson in everything. For me, it was really important that I sort of capture the lessons from this experience and you know in a way that other folks won't have to repeat the mistakes that i had made in and out of combat and so i ended up making a making a film we showed it at the tribeca film festival called the western front um i went back to iraq to film it but that for me was sort of you know really therapeutic right taking these experiences and then sort of processing them talking about them but then also trying to put something out there that somebody could watch and maybe they don't make the same mistakes I made. I, I think in terms of like the military though, like, you know, there's, um, the military gives you a lot of structure. The military does give you a sense of purpose. Um, there's a lot of camaraderie. And I think it's, I think not everybody in the military serves in combat. Not everybody in the military experiences even danger. Uh, there's a lot of folks who don't, but I think it's more when most folks leave the military, 
you suddenly are out here in this world, you don't have that structure. There's a lot of folks that join the military and they know from day one of their lives they want to join the military, but they're not familiar with or knowledgeable about what they want to do when they come out of the military. And so I think, you know, there's just a lot of different um, different ways people struggle coming out. And um, or I mean, thrive coming out. Right, know? right. I mean, and, and you had um, filled that vacuum of like, how do I find a sense of purpose by doing a lot of meaningful things, making a film, starting nonprofits, starting a business. Yeah. Um, but I'm also just curious before we, we move on to other stuff, like just in the day to day, like minutia stuff, was that hard for, was that hard for you just like doing just everyday banal tasks that like we, we have to deal with? Like, um, I was an officer. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, we, uh, yes, you still have to deal with some of that stuff. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's just like, you know, it's just doing the work, right? Yeah. Like that's just, that's what it is. You just sometimes, sometimes you get, don't get to choose. Which, I think one of the first things I had to do in Iraq was an investigation. I can't remember what it was. There was an investigation into like a, some, it's like a, some lost piece of gear. And like, you're just, you're going out to different units and like, you're looking at serial numbers and you're interviewing Marines and you're like, like, how is this <laughs> helping anything? <laughs> but at the end of the day, like having that level of accountability in a unit does help, right? And so I think it's, um, there is a level of banality to it, but it is what it is. Do you, I mean, it strikes me that you sort of pouring yourself into different projects and processing it in that way seems incredibly adaptive. And I'm wondering like um, other people you served with who you've noticed like have just had a harder time making the transition. Like what, do you notice like, what are the qualities that make it harder for some people? Um, it's a, it's a big question. Um, you know, I think, uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, I can speak from sort of experience more broadly in terms of the work we do at Headstrong mm -hmm. and, and what we see there. Um, but I think that there's like the biggest thing is just a reluctance for people to get help. You know, and, and I think it's it's the reluctance is based partly on the stigma around mental health care. I think there's also, though, more than the stigma, <coughs> excuse me, more than the stigma, there's a lot of ignorance around mental health care. And so I think it's, I think there's just a lack of knowledge that contributes. What are the things that, like, you heard, have heard over the years when, when um, talking to fellow veterans, like, who are reluctant to seek mental health care like what do, pe do people think it's like soft do they think it's phony like what do, they, what do people think i think they i think they care? think it just doesn't work yeah. they think they're fine right and it's and they're fine until they're not fine and then when they're not fine that's when things go really far south yeah um but a lot of folks don't understand like you know they'll talk about um i have a good friend who who used to work at headstrong and he, he talks about this experience but he was starting to have anxiety and panic attacks and he was going to, I think it was a birthday party or something, and he's having a really bad panic attack. And he gets to the party, it's at a bar, and he has a beer. He has a second beer, and it goes away, and his wife is with him. His wife is a um, really smart, uh, thoughtful young woman, and he's like, oh, man, I feel so much better after the second beer. And she looks at him, and she's like, yeah, that's called self-medicating. <laughs> and a light bulb went off in his head, and he's like, oh, this is self-medicating. And what he didn't, what he didn't know at the time is that those anxiety and panic attacks were a symptom of something that was treatable. And most people don't make that connection for whatever reason. I think it's lack of knowledge, lack of education, lack of familiarity. Uh, they're not taught it. You feel free to decline this yeah. question, but do you, did you have PTSD or do you think you, like I'm, I'm sure I, yes. I, I, so my sort of theory of PTSD is, PTSD is something that helps you survive and thrive in dangerous situations, yeah. right? And and you think about the symptoms of of PTSD, hypervigilance, mm -hmm. anxiety and panic attacks. I mean, if you're thinking about before a wrestling match or a baseball game or a football game or before you go public speak, right, you start to get jittery. Your body starts to, um, it's your body starting to prepare to react. It's It's getting ready to either fight or flight. And those are physical symptoms that help you survive and thrive in dangerous situations. Sleeplessness, um, restlessness, 
These are all things that are helping you prepare to fight or flight. What happens through prolonged trauma is you start to get to a point where you can't turn off the fight or flight symptom. And what most people don't realize is that's not reversible. And certainly when I got out, um, I had symptoms of PTSD and certainly like I was quicker to anger and certainly I can give you experiences where I did things I wasn't proud of. Mm. Um, you know, and, and at the time I was not knowledgeable about PTSD was, I wasn't knowledgeable that mental health care can help. I was knowledgeable that there, if you go to therapy, these are things that can be dealt with. Um, and so I think that is, I think that's the biggest sort of hill we have to climb is educating people about what this is and that it's treatable. Even, I mean, even the idea that like um, everybody has some form of PTSD, I think can, could be a really liberating idea because, um, you know, the old way of thinking about it was like, oh, well, only certain dudes got PTSD, but like dudes who really had their shit together didn't, right? And and I think... Um, it's Is know, it basically assumed at this point that like if you... No, well, I mean, I, on a like spectrum. The way that the way, when, when I say I think everybody has some level of PTSD, what I mean yeah. is, is that... The, those symptoms of PTSD, right? Th th that that quickness to react, that hypervigilance, yeah. that restlessness. Um, these are things that help you thrive in dangerous Absolutely. situations. Absolutely, like just yeah. as part of like just yes. as part yes. of like the threat if, response it, it system. Is the like, threat response yeah. system, like yeah. that. That's what I mean. Totally. That th that that continues afterwards. Not everybody has that. But I For, guess I was wondering, like, because it 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 kind of seems like a no brainer to me. Like, if you see combat, mm -hmm. like. How could you not have PTSD after that? Like that's or a traumatic. There, those, I think yeah. that there's also, you know, there's been a lot of studies that have shown that um, trauma compounds upon itself, right? Uh -huh. So 47% of the folks that we see at Headstrong have uh, adverse childhood experiences. Wow. Right. I know somebody that has said that the hallways he grew up in were scarier than the hallways of Fallujah. Uh -huh. And, you know, so it's, I think, yes, there is, uh, you know, I think some of it is just based on what's your previous trauma. Yeah, you know, and that makes sense. If you've had a lot of trauma, you're probably going to come home with PTSD. If you haven't, and it's your only experience with with trauma or with danger, you know, you might be much better off. I don't know. Can you just give us a, a quick sense of what the treatment looks like at at um, at yeah. Strong? And so it's it it varies. So we uh, we don't believe in a panacea. We don't believe that there's a one size fits all approach to treating PTSD. And I think part of this is also, you know, as I sort of mentioned already, that um, everybody's coming to us with different backgrounds, right? Some folks have really, really terrible adverse childhood experiences and childhoods. Other folks, you know, have 8, 10, 12 combat deployments. Um, some folks have military sexual trauma, right? So there's, a, there's, and then people have different sort of dispositions and, um, um, propensity for PTSD and they deal with it in different ways. You know, some folks lash out at their spouse, other folks reach for the bottle, some folks do both, um, some folks participate in dangerous activities, right? It, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. So the first thing for us is we really don't believe that there's a panacea or a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, and so when somebody reaches out to us, and that's the only thing we require in our treatment program is that somebody reaches out to us. After that, it's bureaucracy-free, cost-free, uh, confidential um, and effective. And so somebody reaches out to us on our website within a short period of time, usually four to eight hours, at the most 48 hours, uh, a clinician from our team will reach out to them on the phone, get on the phone with them. During that phone call, they make sure that they are not a threat to themselves or somebody else. And then they spend the rest of that time on the phone really identifying the problem that they're trying to solve. So it's much less about diagnosing PTSD and much more about why, why are you reaching out to us? You can't sleep at night. That's one thing. You're having panic attacks. That's another thing. You're, you, you have an issue with your spouse. You have an issue at, at work. Uh, you have an issue with drugs or alcohol. Let's identify what the problem is that you're trying to solve. And then we schedule a time for them to see a psychiatrist in their community. We're in 25 cities around the country. Uh, they see that psychiatrist for one to two sessions. They get an initial diagnosis, make sure they're a good fit for outpatient care. And then what we do in these 25 cities is we've built networks. We have 250 clinicians around the, around the country who are trained in a variety of modalities, all with 10 plus years of experience, all with certain qualifications in terms of trauma therapies, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR. EMDR, is, we found, is very effective. Mm -hmm. What does that stand for? Uh, eye movement 
desensitization and reprocessing. Yeah. Okay. And um, so EMDR is a big one. Uh, we have substance abuse specialists, alcohol addiction, marriage, sexual counseling, uh, sexual trauma counseling, uh, sex addiction. Um, so we have a di- not only geographic diversity in a city or, or communities that people can get to their therapist pretty easily, but also diversity of skills. And based on what the problem is they're trying to solve and what their needs are, and sometimes just what type of person they want to see, right? I want to see a woman. I want to see a man. Uh, it's really important to me. This person has this type of experience, is older, younger, whatever it is. Uh, we then send them to see that that therapist. And then from there, that therapist sends their notes through a HIPAA compliance system to our team at Cornell Medical Center, uh, which is our medical team here in the city. And then they participate in case conferences once a month so we can manage each case. And then based on how things are working for that that client who we're paying to get treated, we'll change the treatment for them, we'll adopt it in conjunction with what works for them. You know, some some uh, clients, you know, the last thing they want to do is exposure therapy. They just mm-hmm. don't want to have to think about their experiences. Others, you know, something like EMDR works really, really well. What, just quickly, um, yeah. either of you can jump in because I know you know what these <laughs> things are too. What, what is exposure therapy and how does EMDR actually I can, physically work? So EMDR, is, it's, it's pretty remarkable. When we first started doing it, I thought it was batshit crazy. Yeah, it sounds like magic. <laughs> it sounds like crazy magic. And, uh, but essentially what it is is PTSD is a physical uh, response to trauma, right? So it's, it's the inability to turn off fight or flight response. It's your body preparing to react to danger. And, and it's preparing to react to danger when there is no danger. But you have a, a triggering event, a car backfires, a memory, something happens that, that triggers this response. And then you have this physical reaction, sweaty palms, restlessness, anger, whatever it is, inability to sleep. Um, and so EMDR, you are processing those memories. So you're doing talk therapy. You're doing that. You're well, you're holding, holding a panel. Yeah, I'm seeing you. Yeah, yeah. so while, while you're holding these two buzzing panels or you're following a light, it's essentially you're doing something physical and something fit, like with these buzzing panels while you are processing the memory with a, with a trained clinician. And what that does is that disaggregates the physical response from the memory. And so the memory now becomes a real memory that's in the past and not something that you feel is happening to you in that moment. And so that's one of the reasons EMDR, I think, is so effective, is it, it disaggregates the physical response from the memory. So it's like cutting cutting the cord between the memory and the yeah. physical response. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and exposure therapy... Well, that is... So in is a way, a, that, that allows you to, to re-expose yourself to the memory without being you know, uh, overwhelmed. There's a great Gary Larson cartoon about exposure therapy, which is like... I don't know. I think it works for some people, and it's evidence-based, but... It's, uh, it's a cartoon of a guy in a box. He's afraid of heights, afraid of snakes, and afraid of the dark. So they put him in a box on a crane that's full of snakes <laughs> to expose him to all of his fears so that he's not afraid of these things right, anymore. Right. So for some folks, that can be re-traumatizing. For others, you learn like, oh, I don't need to be afraid of the dark. Usually you build up slowly <laughs> so, that, so that it's like, like, like I remember like someone who is afraid of being in an elevator, right? And like, so first you're like on the first floor, outside of the elevator maybe standing in the elevator someone's holding the door open you know go up one one flight you know what i mean right, like right. instead of like going to the empire state building and going all the way up yeah so um addicts <clears throat> addicts can obviously um uh relapse um you've said that ptsd is 100% curable after you've been cured could you relapse back into sure. so, fighter so flight? uh look you can you, you're going to live your life, right? And in life, you're going to suffer from new traumas. You're going to have new breakups. You're going to have things are going to happen in life. And you're going to respond to those things. And, you know, I think after treatment, you have tools to respond in a more healthy, productive way. Um, but sure, but the thing, one of the great things about Headstrong is we don't limit the number of sessions. Doors always open. We have folks that, you know, will see us for six to eight months. They'll be the best version of themselves. Something will happen a year, two years later. And, They'll come back for a checkup, and they'll come back for two or three sessions. Um, but I do think it's, in some ways, it is like going to the gym that you do build up a resiliency and a and a strength. 
Um, we should get to the advice question, but I just want to ask one more thing about the work that you do. I mean, you also um, started Task and Purpose, which is a digital publication mm-hmm. that covers mil- the military. Um, you you have a, a, a company that matches veterans to jobs. Yeah. Um, uh, how important is it for veterans to just hang out with other veterans um, uh, in, in terms of like, not just solving, not just keeping PTSD at bay, but just, um, I don't know, just having that sense of not aloneness um, when you come back. I don't know. I mean, that sort of varies from veteran to veteran. I think um, from my perspective, it's one of the most remarkable communities. You know, I just, I love vets, right? Like it's. What do you love about, like for people who are, have no exposure to the military, I think it's kind of hard to understand. You know, in, in some ways, we're living in a time where our country is very, very divided, right? Like, and, and there's, there's too much daylight between all of us, you know, as, as Americans. And I think that there's, there's something about this community that, you know, I have friends who I just, I can't stand their politics. And we just, we argue back and forth on Facebook and we're at each other's throats. But at the end of the day, you know, they are also somebody who, you know, I know loves this country. I know that they are good, decent people, right? I, I know that we care about the same things and we sort of ultimately want the same objective. I know they have been willing to put their lives on the line for me and me for them. And I think there's something really just special about that community. And it, 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 it transcends religion. It transcends race. Um, it transcends gender. Um, you know, the community has been, uh, part, some people in the community have been behind on some issues or ahead on some issues, but I think for the most part, it's um, it's just that shared sense of purpose and community, irreverence. I mean, the the jokes that go on in this community are just awful. Um, <laughs> there's a level of dark humor that uh, is applied to everything, <laughs> and it's um, you know, so I think it's just sort of that a combination of all of that. Let's let's get to the advice question. All right, so um, all right, here we go. Let's find out. Hey, man, I'm 24 years old, and a little over a year ago, I got an office job after working at restaurants when I graduated college. The culture is very broy, which is fine; I can fit in, and there's a lot of good-natured teasing. But last month, something happened, and it's making me want to leave this job. A few weeks ago, I completely slept through my alarm clock. I woke up to tons of texts from my office and panicked. I lied and said my mom had an emergency and I was helping her with it. I ended up calling out that day, came in the next day, and seemingly everything was fine. Then, at our office Christmas party, management was handing out awards for the year. I expected to get one because I worked my ass off and was really disappointed when I was passed over. Then they gave out joke awards, and I got most likely to skip work. People were laughing, and someone even said, how's your mom, as if they knew I was lying. I was completely mortified. I had even brought my girlfriend, and she could tell I was pissed. I don't know what to do. I feel so betrayed by these guys and embarrassed. I just want to look for a new job. This is not the first time they've done something that I felt crossed a line, but it feels like the last straw. What do you think? Should I stay or should I go? Signed, humiliated on Houston. What are your first impressions <laughs> hearing that question? <laughs> but my impression is is that um, this guy should take a deep breath. Uh-huh. Uh, be willing to laugh at himself a bit. Um but also think a little bit about who's actually responsible for, for what happened, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, he, he slept through his alarm, fine, that's an, that's an honest mistake. Um, but then he lied about it, Yeah. right? You know, like, to me, that's, there's, there's no reason to lie about something. He brought his mom into that lie. <laughs> um, you know, and, and at the end of the day, like, son's gonna come up tomorrow, nobody's gonna lose their life over this. Um, he's gonna be fine, he still has a job. And he should just shrug it off and like work his ass off so he gets the award next year. Yeah. I, I remember when I was, uh, some of my first jobs out of college, I was like a real screw up or just like didn't, I don't know, just did not have yet figured out what it really means to be like to show up every day. Yeah. Um, and was always trying to like worm my way out of things. So I have some empathy for like uh, just not getting it yet and yeah i my, one of my first jobs i worked at a fish market and uh when i was um i worked there for seven years over summers and one summer when i was in high school 
um, my, uh, my boss was an amazing woman named Betsy Larson. Uh, and, um, I, there was like a high school party the night before and I got too drunk and showed up the next morning, really hung over. And, um, you know, I remember working at the, the fish market and I just felt like crap and, um, probably still smelled like alcohol. And, uh, you know, she pulled me aside and she looked at me and she was like, she was the toughest boss I ever had, including any boss I had in the Marine Corps, any drill instructor, you know, um, and uh, she just gave me this look and she said, don't ever come into work again like that or you won't be coming into work again here. Mm. And, uh, and you know, it's just, it's part of growing up and part of learning, I guess. But like I was fortunate I had somebody like Betsy Larson who wasn't going to fire me on the spot, gave me a second chance. And you live and learn. You know, this guy should just live and learn. Live and learn. Yeah, I mean, the... um. The thing that just stuck out to me was was the lie, and uh, I I think like all of us lie when we're younger, especially, and then like definitely I've noticed the older I've gotten, the less tolerance I have for other people lying, and also the more I just realize that like um, I mean sometimes lies are necessary. Like there's an example, like an example is. If someone who's in a really fragile state is like, "Do I look okay right now?" You shouldn't be like, "No, you look like shit," right? Um, but but so often lies are not actually necessary, right? And um, and like part of being part of being a mature, responsible adult is like not just defaulting to a lie. And it just it just like struck me that like again, this is easier said than done. I don't want to sound holier than thou with this guy, but like, had he just said to his boss, you know, gosh. I'm really, really fucking embarrassed about this. He could have even used the word fucking to make it seem more human. Um, I'm really embarrassed about this. Uh, I slept through my alarm. I, I can't believe it. I, I'm, you know, I'll set two, a second alarm tomorrow yeah. to make sure it doesn't happen again. Like everyone would have been cool with it. It would have been fine. You know, he, he ended up humiliating himself because like he was caught in a lie everyone knew that he was lying and he and he used his mom as an excuse yeah. i mean that's also the worst possible kind of lie is be like there, there's a medical emergency in my family <laughs> oh, with the most important person in my life you know, <laughs> like, like it's a little too it's, obvious it's like the grandma my grandma is died or something yeah, you yeah, know yeah. excuse and it just um, i'm also superstitious so you never <laughs> yeah, want to go right. there with a oh, med- yeah, yeah. never use a medical emergency yeah. um but he he um uh, you know, and, 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 but it seems to me that like just reading into the subtext of this, that like, if they're making fun of him being like, Oh, your mom's is your mom. Okay. Um, maybe this wasn't the first time that he used, mm. used this kind of, um, excuse, um, yeah. because, because they, they could tell that he's kind of a guy who, who, who seems a little also, flaky. And there, there's something about yeah. him too. That's not, he's not taking responsibility. Absolutely for what happened, not. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, you can't own what other people are going to do. People are going to do what they're going to do. You can only really, ha- you can take responsibility for your, re- your action, your, your reactions and your actions. And, uh, that's the biggest piece of advice I'd have for this guy is just take responsibility for who you are, what you did and, and for what happened. I'm just thinking about like, I think you're right. And I'm thinking about, right. He's sort of like, he's not taking responsibility cause he like, he doesn't want to feel embarrassed is sort of like how I see that. Like if he owned it, like oh, I fucked up, like that would yeah. feel bad. And so he's trying to like pretend in a way like it didn't happen. It's not a problem. Um, and it takes a certain kind of like, I don't know, uh, self-awareness or comfort with yourself to be like, okay with having fucked something up, Yeah, you know? And um, I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts about like what it takes or how you, like you must be the boss of a lot of people. You got a bunch of companies. Like, how do you help as a manager? Like, how do you help people? Yeah. So hear hard. The, hard one news? of the most important pieces of advice I got growing up. Um, there, there's this. It's like three or four pieces of advice, but uh, one of them was from my dad. Um, so we we were going on a camping trip, and uh, my dad had you know bought me a Swiss Army knife for the camping trip, and we're getting ready to go. We're going to the Adirondacks, and. Uh, we, my dad has a packing list and I was probably in, I think I was in third or fourth grade. I was as little and we are going down the checklist. You know, you have your rain jacket, you have your backpack, your sleeping bag, Swiss army knife, I lost a Swiss army knife. Mm. And, um, my dad's like, all right, let's go. So we get in the car, drive to Bob sports and he buys me another Swiss army knife. 
And my dad is not the type of guy who would just be like, oh, no problem. Like, let me buy you a replacement. And um, he he hands me the Swiss Army knife and uh, he says, I'll never forget it. He looks at me and says, I am never going to buy you another Swiss Army knife for as long as you live. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, but I want you to know that every man deserves a second chance. Mm. And he said, and, I, and I, this was my dad, every chance he had, he was finding a lesson in it. And he said, every, every man deserves a second chance. And, um, and he says, I want you to remember that. And so for his, uh, his 75th birthday, I bought him a, a little Swiss Army knife with, you know, that I framed and put a little thing on it that said, you know. What a good dad. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a very strict dad. He was very, very tough. Um, but he, was a, he, to this day, is a wonderful father and friend. Do you and, still and have your Swiss Army knife? Uh, I do. I <laughs> <Okay>. do. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but he is, uh, um, and so I think, you know, you sort of sometimes have to be gentle with yourself. Sometimes mm-hmm. you just have to give yourself a second chance. And I think especially when you're dealing with people, um, you know, it's, for me, I sort of see my job as like, I just want to create environments where people can create the work that they're going to be most proud of, you know, when they're old and with their grandkids and they're looking back in their life and they're like, yeah, that that five years I spent at Headstrong, like, that really meant something mm-hmm. or, you know, that, that six months we were in Iraq with, with, uh, you know, cap India, that meant something. Um, and I think part of that is, is, you know, when you find really good hardworking people that care about what they're doing and you're fortunate enough to find those types of folks, um, the mistakes they make are just honest mistakes, you know? So it's, it's, you know, you can give them a little bit of a hard time for it, but you also know that, the work they're doing day in and day out is having a huge impact. That they're working hard. That they're part of the team. Um, and if they're not and they're toxic, then you know they're sort of creating an environment that's the antithesis of what we're trying to do, and, and they no longer belong there. You're making me think. I mean, since I'm a therapist, I always kind of go inside and and what you just said about considering something an honest mistake. Like in a way, it's like. I feel like this guy doesn't think of it as an honest mistake. If you have to cover it up, then you feel like, in a way, you you feel like you did something wrong right. that you need to hide. And that's worth looking at. Like, did you? Like, are you being, like, what did you do last night that you overslept the night before? Like, right. how how are you engaging with your work that this this is what happened? It didn't just start there. Yeah. I guess my my only last lingering <laughs> doubt with this guy is like, I mean, you know, over this conversation, like I've just appreciated that you've had a lot of teachers in your life and a lot of people who have like held you accountable, maybe in a loving way, maybe in like a firm way, like, but somehow you've like, you feel okay about this with yourself. But like, I'm imagining for this guy, maybe he hasn't had those experiences and he somehow has not learned that it's okay to, in a sense, uh, feel feel like a failure feel ashamed and he doesn't even have to feel like a failure he's he doesn't think it's okay for him to just feel like he fucked up once yeah yeah (laughs) or to admit that he made a mistake and so i so if we're all kind of concluding that that's what you need to learn to like be okay with this um i still think there's a certain point where you can blame it on nurture nature experiences what if this guy's 24 years old there's a time for him to just do it just do it just do it and grow Uh up (laughs) We always end our show asking our guests if if there's um, a particular piece of advice that um, that sticks out to them that they often come back to and maybe share with other people. Yeah, I so I think that the the one about second chances for my father is is a big one. Um, there's a couple there's a couple others. Um, one that comes to mind and um, is uh, and and I've, I've shared this story a couple times before. Um, but um, when uh, when I was in, in the Marine Corps, um, I had a, a instructor uh, whose name was John Maloney. He was killed in Iraq in 2005. And we were doing our infantry officer training, which is one of the hardest courses in the Marine Corps. And it was late at night. He pulled all the officers and signed him, sort of a legendary captain. And he asked us um, a simple question, which is, what comes first, your mis- the, the mission or your Marines? And all of us knew we were going off to war, so we knew that you know, this wasn't just theoretical. Like, we were going to be in a situation soon where we'd have to choose whether the mission meant more than the lives of our Marines. And 
you know, some guys thought, well, you always take care of your Marines and, and, you know, their lives matter more than any mission. And there's other guys that are like, no, you got to try to accomplish the mission. Like, that's what we're doing. That's what our job. And we sort of were arguing back and forth. And then somebody asked Captain Maloney and, and his response was, uh, I think you take care of your Marines and they take care of the mission. And I think, you know, I think that's something that's off it. I think there's, that has stuck with me in so many different levels. You know, one is when you're fortunate enough to lead a team, you're really, your job is to take care of people, you know, and make sure that they're set up to, to, to excel and succeed in their positions. Um, but I think there's also something in there about just that, you know, we have a responsibility to take care of other people and take care of each other. And I think that's something that's just also lost uh, more and more these days. And um, so that's the advice that I would sort of impart is to, to take care of each other. Great. Thank you. Um, I mean, do you usually like when we have someone on here and they have like a social media presence, we're like, where can people find you? But you don't strike me as like someone. No, I don't really have much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, do you think like, uh, the, the, a lay person, um, should read task and perp and uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, we, um, you, you know, mean a we, civilian? Yeah, a civilian. So, <laughs> for person. sure. And I think more civilians reading it, the better. I mean, so, you know, the, the job of, of Task and Purpose is, you know, we entertain in order to inform. So we try and write about news and stories in a way that, that people are going to be entertained by it. But there's also real impact journalism that our team's doing. And so this year in particular, our team has done something, some, some work on something that would seem mundane to some civilians around, you know, issues around military housing. Um, but these are huge issues for military families. Uh, they played a big role in breaking a story about um, changes to the tax code that affected Gold Star families, families that had lost somebody and then got benefits. A lot of these families were bumped up to a 30 to 40% tax bracket. Mm. So they were getting crushed um, with taxes, and uh, that was recently changed by law. They've t- done some work on something called the Ferez Doctrine, which uh, essentially stipulates that if you are in the military and you suffer from medical malpractice, you can't sue the DOD or the VA for medical malpractice. So imagine that you're a family, you lost your breadwinner to med- medical malpractice. There's a ton of horror stories around this. There's no recourse, right? There's, there's, you're sort of just left out in the cold. So they made some modifications that they can now petition the DOD um, for, for severance, but it's, uh, it, they need to take it the next step and allow it to go to civilian courts. And so these stories, I think the point I'm trying to make is it's important that everybody reads these stories and cares about what's happening in the community. So the website is taskandpurpose.com. taskandpurpose.com. And, and if there are any veterans listening who are interested in uh, learning more about Headstrong, the website yep. for that is? Getheadstrong.org. Awesome. Thanks awesome. so much. for Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you. That's it for our show this week, everyone. As always, if you have a question, you can email us at heymanpod at gmail.com or give us a call, 917-426-4326. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at heymanpod. And if you have a second, uh, give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, uh, click subscribe. Thanks so much. See you next week.